here we go, here we go, here we go. Episode four of the Grassy Knoll. Brian, Alex, Nick coming at you again. Brian was fortunate enough to sit down with Tom Veerheller, a biology professor at KCTCS, formerly to all you homebodies, PCC, only the real will know, uh, in Prestonsburg, Kentucky. And um, what I took from that is uh, if you vacation to South Florida, uh, you, you've got some stuff to look out for when uh, it goes underwater. Brian, am I wrong? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's going to take a while, but it's coming. You know, it's yeah. not going to be good. So, so talk a little bit about what you guys went over, the cycles of the earth and um, how human actions and, and interactions are accelerating some of the natural cycles that, that we're used to, I guess. Yeah, um, actually, to start out on the episode, uh, well, with Tom, he showed this slide of a graph and it showed, you know, it was taken from Oscor samples going back like 50 plus I can't remember, it's like 50 plus thousand years ago. And they were able to measure the CO2 in the atmosphere. And it showed that there were natural cycles of more elements of CO2 in the atmosphere and that increased the temperature. And then it shows, like, from the Industrial Revolution, the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. And it's insane. Like, it is the most insane straight. It's like if you're looking at the stock market and it's like a big pump and dump when it just goes like straight up. That's what it looks like. And if you kind of relate that to stocks, you know, you'll see it goes straight up and then it just drops. Um, but we're not having that natural drop. We, we just keep, you know, keep doing it. Accelerating. And he was talked. Yeah. And he talked a lot about how this is even that is being accelerated through stuff like the palm oil um, farming and deforestation that kind of stuff it's really interesting he's like he's super smart and i loved having him on here we'll have him on again because there was you know stuff that i thought you know i should ask after after the fact but yeah i hope you guys enjoy it yeah check a check cut run it so what exactly is this case study okay uh so this uh so this topic is under climate change and this particular slide of Florida is a case study of uh, what would happen with climate change and sea level rise. So um, a lot of the Earth's uh, water is in the form of ice, uh, whether it's like in Greenland or Antarctica or other uh, uh, glacial ice forms. And then what this one is showing is that southern tip of Florida from Miami through the Everglades, uh, mm. what land areas would be lost and inundated with uh, various levels of uh, ocean rise uh, due to uh, rising temperatures. So. so how far up actually is that as far as the sea level rise? So uh, there'll be there's a, another slide uh, a little bit later. Okay. Uh, uh, so it, uh, the, the other graph goes up to about uh, one meter. So, mm. uh, you know, we science folks use this metric system. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So a meter is a little bit over three feet. So, so that these are projections for that kind of, where the blue is all covering there. Yeah. These are projections for like 2100. Oh, uh, wow. But, but there's uh, evidence right now. Uh, so as the folks see the podcast, you could go to like YouTube videos and things like that of like Miami Beach. 
Yeah. And uh, the way the sea level has risen already, the effects it's having on those communities. Well, so, I remember seeing stuff about Venice, how Venice now floods yeah. like daily. And it it didn't do that, you know, until fairly recently. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so every, you know, it, it's it, there's a lot of geo physics and things like this that differs but you know coastal areas all over the world would be affected and then uh so here you, you know this particular one there in southern florida and uh, and uh like miami beach but you, you so they you know they've had to re-engineer streets already and make plans and so what will happen is streets will flood but it won't be like rains that we have yeah. around here it'll just be like tidal conditions and things like that mm. So do you think since, you know, this is a model for you, like you said, 2100, um, do you think that it's getting worse since we're seeing things like places already flooding, like Venice and like streets in Miami, stuff like that? Yes. And, you think and, it's like, like, do you think the models need to be redone with like current, you know, data? Let's go down. Uh, can you go down two slides? Yeah. So, uh, so what those are, uh, so you can see that 1.0, uh, that would be the one meter mark in 2100. Yeah. And then, uh, so th there's different estimates, but, uh, right now, like, I think the way they've engineered it in Miami, you, you know, is like two inches per decade is what they're trying to, you know, what they're trying to compensate for. Yeah. So you can see, and of course, with the coronavirus and science, we've heard a lot of the word models, haven't we, here <laughs> the last three months? Well, that's what this climate change and its effect on, uh, on uh, coastal areas, those are models. And yeah. so just as in that graph right there, you can see, you know, different projections and models that that's what these models are based on. So, but there is, uh, uh, you know, there's, there's inundation and flooding. And then one other thing that happens in coastal areas is, especially in Florida with their sandy soil, where uh, they have wells for fresh water um, as, the, as the sea level rises and you get the seawater mm -hmm. coming in where uh, they have to move their wells because, you know, they start, they start pumping up saline salt water, what used to be fresh water. So there's... I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah, so in, you know, in addition to the higher water or higher water levels and flooding like that, there's all sorts of implications to to this, and it all has to do with, you know, the the, and you you've probably seen pictures before of uh, you, you know where we came out of the last ice age and how things would have differed, and the ocean levels would have been lower because it would yeah. have been ice, and so we've been in a warming period since the last ice age. But then these effects of global warming are now accelerating it. Yeah, and it's pretty clear that we're having an effect on the acceleration. Yeah, I think. I mean, I don't think there's any denying that. I mean, I'd, I actually, I kind of kid. Every once in a while, you'll hear this thing that uh, it's agreed on by 97% of the scientists. But whoever those other 3% are, I haven't met them. <laughs> well, it's like the commercials for toothpaste, like one in 10 to or you know, nine of 10 dentists, uh, you know, recommend this product. Well, who's yeah. the one that does it? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> like, what's this guy holding out for? Right. Well, so there is, there is a few in the field 
I mean, I've really tried to study this as much as I can, and we'll get to some slides where my actual degree and work is in uh, plant physiology and things like photosynthesis. And so, you know, I'm not uh, trained in, in climate science like this, but I've, I've really tried to study it and, you know, integrate it into my classes. Uh, and, the, you know, the 3%, when I've looked it up, would include, you know, maybe people from other fields. Uh, like, okay. Uh, it's not their expertise. Yeah, they might be in physics or some other field that hasn't really studied this. And oftentimes, you, you know, what they're going back to is, you know, outdated models mm. 30 years ago. Yeah. So. Do you see or have, you know, an opinion on the fact that sometimes like scientists are paid by larger corporations to you know, not necessarily lie about results, but it's really easy to lie with statistics. I mean, if for as good as they are, they're very easy to manipulate. And do you think that that's kind of a problem as to why there is this holdout, especially among like businesses and the government? Yeah. Um, so are you familiar with that Mark Twain quote since you mentioned that? Or? Oh, maybe. I don't know. There's lies, damn lies, and then there's statistics. <laughs> well, that, that is, I've not heard that, but that is very true. I mean, okay. There's even there's a book whose the title of the book is How to Lie with Statistics. Right. And uh, um, one place this shows up is what it, when you look at and, and maybe we'll go through a couple of slides here. We can see it. But the, the years you pick, it would be kind of like the stock market. Right. Yeah. So it depends on what date you pick and what date you finish. So, uh, you, you know, you can pick certain dates and. Um, you, you, uh, and you can work your way around not seeing like temperature rise, yeah. things like that. Uh, but I mean, the overwhelming amount. And, and if, you know, people on the podcast, if they're not familiar with it, the topic that you just mentioned right here, you, you know, go Google or YouTubes and things like that of the tobacco industry, for yeah. example, in yeah. terms of, you know, who was paid to do what. The other thing I have found, though, <laughs> is if you look up these days, uh, the websites for energy companies, I mean, they will recognize climate change. Mm -hmm. So if, yeah, I mean, I don't know, you know, I, I'm not really satisfied in terms of what they're doing about it in terms of its impact. Uh, but but it's it, it they will recognize it in terms of uh, like their their mission statements and things like that. Yeah, I've seen that a lot of these places, like the big people, Exxon, Halliburton, these kind of right. guys are hiring and looking towards, you know, changing everything into like a more green, right, centric thing. But they're still, you know, they're still drilling the oil and everything. So they're not, they're talking about it, but they're pushing it further back. And, you know, my worry, and you can tell me if this is crazy or not, because you're way smarter and have studied it way more than me. Um, I think it's going to be or we're sort of on a precipice as to where it's going to be too late for these big companies to actually do something about it. And it's going to be so hard to steer the course to us to a manageable level. Right. Uh, and that is a big debate right now in yeah. the field in terms of like what that tipping point would, would be. Um, the, the news this summer is not good at all, actually, from the Arctic that uh, they're having record temperatures. And uh, this is something that uh, the folks you know, can look up to on the podcast in terms of the record temperatures they're having in the Arctic. 
and the melting and the tundra melting. And then there's another greenhouse gas. So we haven't mentioned that. The main greenhouse gas I was referring to here has been carbon dioxide so far in terms of fossil fuels. But uh, uh, methane is another. Uh, well, isn't that the big fear about places in Russia? The yes. methane permafrost exactly right. releasing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's that's happening this summer. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of tell me if this is wrong, but it does it kind of seem like larger cities are producing so much and it's affecting the continents and the continents heating up like, you know, and releasing things like methane from permafrost, stuff like that. That's what's really harming the Arctic. Yes. And uh, because the, the temperature changes are not uniform. Yeah. So what's happening is the Arctic and Antarctic regions are having higher uh, temperature uh, warming increases, and that's more critical because you know that's where the great ice melts are or yeah. you know, I, I, ice part. So it's well, not that's going to raise the sea level. Yes, that's right. And 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 so uh, and then kind of what you're referring to before a little bit. This tipping point would be if you did get to a point where you know the melting of the ice accelerates, and then this methane release from tundra, as you were referring to right there in the article you just had up from Russia. Uh, you know, would, uh, you know, further accelerate things. Mm. So, uh, we, 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 you know, we hope that that so that's actually in one of the debates. Now, doing something about it, you know, is in two levels uh, in terms of how many of these greenhouse gases we're putting in the atmosphere. And then there's an area that I'm not as familiar with at all, but uh, uh, kind of geoengineering or engineering our way out. Of, yeah. Well, one is to try to come up with methods to take carbon dioxide back out of the atmosphere and store it. And the other one, ever hear this about releasing particles into the upper atmosphere to reflect away the Earth? Yeah. It's not, yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, so, mm-hmm. yeah. Weren't they like talking about using gold? Is that, it, it was different nanoparticles. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah I, I didn't know about gold, but I just yeah. knew. I'm yeah. thinking there was gold involved in some way. Mm-hmm. No. Um, it, if you go down, I wanted to show you this. Go down a couple slides. Uh, the guy there with the ice core, and then the next Number one up. Five. Yeah, this one's fine. Yep. So uh, this is the data that I always go to. So this carbon dioxide, which is from the, you know using fossil fuels. So coal, oil, and natural gas. And so this data, as you can see, it goes back 800,000 years. Mm. And uh, this is, you know, one of these fantastic parts of science, <laughs> you know, that, that they've come up with methods where you could study the Earth's atmosphere going back 800,000 years is what this graph is showing. So the red is the carbon dioxide concentration. And then you can see the blue is the temperature. Yeah, and you can just see how those correlate together, and you can see the Earth has natural cycles. So, uh, you know, ice ages and then warming periods, and ice ages and warming periods, and you can see it's related to this carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere. Yeah, well, they, you really can. All the way over to the right. So that zero is like this date now. <laughs> yeah. See how that red line just spikes. Yeah, skyrockets. Yep, it skyrockets, and that's where we're at right now. So since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, 
you know, it, you know, a lot of it would have been the development of the steam engine and burning coal and that part of industry. Why it it uh, so when I was a boy going to college, okay, <laughs> why about at that point was so for over a hundred years there have been scientists which could look at physics and chemistry, and they could say that this carbon dioxide molecule is a powerful molecule to trap heat energy in the atmosphere. That's been known for well over 100 years. Um, So then when I was going to college, though, why then, you know, everyone knew about these cycles and this carbon dioxide being released. And there there was a couple thoughts, though. One, that the carbon dioxide may be released at a high rate, but it would be absorbed by the oceans. So it wouldn't be in the atmosphere. And another one was, and we do know this is true, that the higher the carbon dioxide level, the faster the plant growth. And, you, you know, hmm. plants through photosynthesis would take up the carbon dioxide. I was actually going to ask you about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, uh, but it's turned out that, you know, we humans, and, and we're doing great things with this, <laughs> or we've done great things, right, in terms of modern yeah. civilization. And I'm talking to you on the computer and using electricity and things exactly. like that. Exactly. Yeah, you know, we've done fantastic things in terms of humans and and modern societies and everything, but we've put carbon dioxide in the atmosphere much, much faster than the plants could ever take it up. And then there's a whole other pollution problem with the oceans taking up carbon dioxide because it develops into the form of a acid in the oceans. Yeah. Well, doesn't it lose oxygen and kills, I mean, tons of fish? Yeah. So there's two parts to that. Uh, One, uh, the oceans have become more acidic, and especially corals. Have you heard about coral bleaching? Um, no. It's it's the death of corals. So oh. um, the corals are very very sensitive to what the pH or acid base balance mm. is. Uh, the other thing is they're very sensitive to temperature. So um, this coral bleaching is where you think about. Yeah, have you ever got to go like scuba dive or yeah, or, yeah, and stuff? <laughs> yeah. Or if we, if we haven't, you know, we've all got to see pick there. Yeah, yeah. Happens, right. So, um, but then the death of those corals and the death of those corals has pretty much, uh, you know, really been substantiated to be a, a combination of both uh, the change in the acid level, which is the carbon dioxide, mm-hmm. and then the warming temperatures at the same time. And, well, and the coral reefs are such a home for a diverse group of sea life. That's and, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, so, so then, but what, so that was like when I was in college, but yeah. by now, you know, we've got all this data, like the end of that graph to show that these carbon dioxide levels are, you know, uh, at insane levels. Yep. <laughs> I mean, that's insane. Yeah, they just don't show up in the fossil record. And, and yeah. they just don't show up with anything except, you know. And, and so it's, it's, so that number on the side is parts per million. Yeah. So it's 250, 300. So 400 parts per million, like where we're at right now, um, that's like 0.04%. But carbon dioxide, it's just the physics and the chemistry of it. It, it just does this wonderful, well, just this really extreme job of capturing heat energy. Yeah. And so, so it just traps everything in. Yes. And it stays in the atmosphere for a long time. 
So this cycle of plants taking up carbon dioxide or this cycle of the carbon dioxide being absorbed by the oceans is a very slow process. So, you, you know, we could do things to stop today and it's going to take decades and generations for every, you know, anything to be balanced yeah. because of that time period. And there's so much energy in there. So, you know, I used my car today. Did you use your car? I did. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. I'll raise my hand. Um, I, I emitted these carbon dioxide molecules in the atmosphere. Well, that's in the gasoline, right? Yeah. And, and so this, this is some chemistry, but if you think of that carbon dioxide with that C on there, that's what was used to get my car down the highway. Well, yeah. uh, you know, if you or I would run out of gas, how many miles per gallon does your car get? Oh, not much. It's like, it's a Jeep Cherokee. I get like 14, 15. Oh, okay. It's not great. Well, that's all right though. So what if you ran out of gas and uh, you had to get out and push that car for those 15 miles, right? Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. I, I mean, this gasoline, it's, it's, it's really a marvelous molecule, right, that are in there in terms of how much energy can be released. Yeah, that's true. So if you think about, you know, putting a gallon of gasoline in your Cherokee, but then, you know, you really had to do that energy to push that thing, you know, how much work that would be. Well, the amount of energy that is trapped in the atmosphere is somewhere between a thousand and a hundred thousand times greater than the energy you get out of it into your vehicle. That, that, that what I'm saying here is, you know, that CO2 is so effective in terms of holding on to the sun's energy into the atmosphere. It's like a thousand to a hundred thousand times greater than the energy wow. released when you use the gasoline. So even though it's, you know, this parts per million business and, well, you know, we went from 280 parts per million to 400 parts per million, <laughs> you know, what's the big deal? It's, be it's a big deal because of the, the, the effectiveness of the element. That, that element, that compound is just really effective at holding it in. And if you go down a couple more slides, I'll, uh, since you were asking about uh, that one... The one there with the, there's a curve there. It says uh, number eight. That one right there. Yep. Okay. So this this is. Have you ever seen this one, you guys? No. All right. So this is the really famous one. Okay. Um, and it goes right uh, to the point. So I'm gonna uh, give up my age here a little bit. Uh, see how it starts there at 1958. Yeah. So a year before I was born, there was a scientist by the name of Keeling, and he went out to Hawaii. And he went out to Hawaii to measure carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere. And he went to Hawaii. I mean, if I had my choice, I'd go do research in Hawaii. Yeah, that wouldn't be bad. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't that would be nice. Greenland, Siberia, Antarctic. He goes off to Hawaii. And he did go out to Hawaii, though, because... Um, it was out there in the middle of the Pacific, and he wanted to measure carbon dioxide, so he wanted to get away from, you know, human influences. Well, if you look at that, the red line on there, see how it goes up and down and up and down? Yeah. And you look, it's every year. And that's because here in the northern hemisphere, like right here in Kentucky, uh, going back to your other uh, question or point that you made, um, we have all the, the forests are green, the plants are taken off, right? Yeah. So, taking up carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So in the summer months, 
that line goes down because the plants take the carbon dioxide out. But then in the winter, the leaves come off, the trees aren't green, the line goes back up. So it has that, uh, you know, up and down for each year. But you can clearly see what's happened since 1958 up until, well, this goes up to 2018. It's seasonal. That's why it's got the line going up and down. And that would be photosynthesis. And if you were in the southern hemisphere, it would be just the reciprocal of that, obviously, because they have, you know, reciprocal yeah. seasons. Uh, but you can see the clear and steady pace of carbon dioxide increasing. And then the blue line is the temperature. And uh, so there's the data like that. There's the data that I showed you from these ice core samples of the carbon dioxide levels uh, in going back 800,000 years. And then there's also physics that it's beyond correlation. You can show in the laboratory the characteristic of the carbon dioxide molecule that this is what you would expect to do. And this is kind of how science works, that 100 years ago, uh, there were individuals that could make predictions that said if the carbon dioxide levels would increase, this is what we would expect to happen to the... Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. and the carbon dioxide levels have increased. And what's happened to the temperature? <laughs> is, has it been their predictions? Were, are they accurate? Oh, they're really good. It's, it's, oh, it's, it's cool. really amazing. Yeah. Um, so there is uh, uh, high levels of uh, correlation yep, between the two. And, and so, that, that's, that's that area of like predictive science. Yeah. yeah. So one question I have for you. Mm -hmm. um, you, you talked about how plant life, you know, especially here, has, has been doing well. Could the fact that we're so big on deforestation and especially like these big forests like the Amazon, is that also speeding up this whole process? Yes. Yeah. And uh, so here, you know, in South America, yeah. uh, where there's been tremendous, uh, you, you know, so over decades, there's been destruction. But then mm -hmm. if you followed the news, there's been accelerated destruction. Yeah. Well, with the palm oil and stuff like right. that. So has been palm oil awful. from Southeast Asia. That's, that's yeah, right. It's been devastating. Yep. The palm oil from Southeast Asia to, uh, you know, the Amazon rainforest in yeah. uh, South America. Um, so... I mean, you can think about that. There's, you, you know, there's the greatest terrestrial place yeah. on Earth to take up carbon dioxide. <laughs> and, and we're destroying it. And we're destroying it. So we're releasing yeah. carbon dioxide and then destroying the plant life that could, you know, have absorb it. it. Yeah. Up. Yep. So mm -hmm. another thing, I, another question I have for you, is there any fear from scientists as to like viruses that could be because, you know, we're dealing with virus viruses right now. Yep. So viruses within ice that could be melting into the ocean, stuff like that. Is that a kind of a fear? I, I don't uh, think of that, but I will. In, but there is a fear <laughs> in terms of uh, viruses with this climate change and warming patterns. Yeah. So, um, so for example, uh, organisms that spread potential viruses or other types of diseases like mosquitoes. So the mosquito species that would be found in more tropical or subtropical areas, as there's global warming, uh, those type of vectors of virus or other types of diseases can, you know, further spread into other yeah. areas. So the main fear about, I, if you, I guess we can use the word fear, or the, the main concern about uh, the, the disease would be various types of vectors like mosquitoes and various kinds mm. of 
other, uh, you know, insects that yeah. expand, you know, and have greater effects on human impact. Yep. Mm -hmm. yeah, that would be terrifying. So what else can we see on here? Yeah. So actually, if you want to go, I was thinking down two more slides. We could do that. So uh, this one, we've, we've already looked at the carbon dioxide, but then here's two others. There's methane. And then you mentioned that in terms of like from Siberia and places with the warming temperature where the methane is being released. And that would be this snowball cascading effect. Yeah. That the methane is sequestered and stored away, but then because of these temperature changes is being released, well, then that just accelerates the warming temperatures, which releases even more methane gas, and then the nitrous oxide also. So the main component of the atmosphere is nitrogen gas. So 99% of the atmosphere is nitrogen and oxygen, but they don't do very much at all in terms of uh, holding in uh, temperatures uh, in the atmosphere. It's, it's those ones of the less than 1% carbon dioxide, and then here the release of methane and nitrogen, uh, nitrous oxides uh, that, uh, and, you, and you can see how they've accelerated here in those parts per million. So, so those are some of the other, uh, you know, what we refer to as greenhouse gases. Yeah, methane is even higher than the CO2. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which is, you know, also insane. Right. And that's one area both from, uh, you know, the release with the warming temperatures. And the other one is in terms of the way we use natural gas. And of course, yeah. you know, I like electricity and things myself. But if there's an oil spill, you can see where the oil is, right? Yeah. Uh, but in the natural gas industry, if the pipe is leaking, it's you don't see a spill or anything like that. So one concern is as we use more natural gas, uh, I think we should be very careful in terms of monitoring it and having regulations about the potential leaks uh, uh, because it's not the same as an oil spill, which the pollution can be readily identified. Uh, but the methane that could be leaking from, uh, you know, some kind of fractured pipe or something like that uh, is uh, an impact in, in this, in this uh, uh, climate change. Well, is there any concern about the pollution of the waterways from, you know, fracking and other stuff like, you know, oiling, drilling for oil and stuff like that? Could also getting these chemicals in the water accelerate this whole warming process? I don't, I don't know about the chemicals in the water, but the, the, main, the main effect on water with, with this topic that we're talking about right now is that as the waters warm, there's pollution events that can happen. Uh, one is that it's, it's part of physics and chemistry. As the water temperature increases, um, it cannot contain as, much, as many gases, including oxygen. Yeah. So like the example like do you use if, uh, if you buy a, uh, do you say pop or soda? <laughs> I say pop. Okay, so you say pop. <laughs> Right. <laughs> what do you say? I say pop too. That's pretty yeah. good. Yeah. 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 Pop too. So, um, 
so in the in the summer, you know, if one would happen to have worn pop and, you know, you have to be very careful with it uh, because if you go to open up, it's not shaken up or, or it's just moved about a little bit, you know, it yeah, all comes out, right? Well, that's because of the warm temperature and the, and the carbon dioxide gas does not dissolve into the water. Well, that's carbon dioxide, but the same is true of oxygen. So one of the very in, in this, this area of the detrimental things that could happen to, uh, in terms of water pollution, is the rising water temperature will have less oxygen. And then obviously that lower oxygen level, level you know, would be critical to all sorts of aquatic life, you know. Is now, the other one, have, have you read about these algal blooms? No. Oh, well, they're a serious business. Um, as they're, they're, they're kind of a twofold thing, uh, going back to the water pollution. Um, there's a problem with water pollution with nutrients getting in the water. So at first, when I first learned this, like in college, I, you know, this, this nutrients in the water, I, if I hear nutrients, I think it's a good thing, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I need these nutrients. There we go. Yep. Oh, so, oh, I have seen this before. Yeah. So uh, a combination of the warmer temperatures and then the nutrients. Now, in the United States, most of these nutrients are from agriculture. Yeah. So it's runoff from fields. So they could have chemical fertilizer out there that was supposed to be for the corn. But when the rain came, it ended up in the ditch and it goes into the streams and then the lakes and so on. Um, so but then there's certain species of this algae that produce toxins. Mm. And when they produce those toxins, uh, you know, it can have, you know, uh, 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 there's a, a uh, terrible effect. Nick, you know. second row, third over. There's a no, yeah. sorry, fourth over. Is this some of the toxic stuff that they secrete? Yes, yeah, so, so that's the algae itself. Okay. So most of these algae are a type of algae that are actually in the world of biology, uh, uh, more, more closely related to bacteria. Oh, wow. So they're uh, called blue-green algae, and then certain species of them release toxins. And there was one slide there, just one over from that, where it said Lake Erie. That's okay. That's all right. It looked about the same. But um, on Lake Erie towards Toledo, what, yeah. uh, a couple years ago, they had one of these blooms where, and they had their intake for their, you know, metropolitan water supply. And that, that has hit other places, too, that they have to keep track of uh, what mm. these levels are and the potential they can have on, on, on drinking water supplies. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Because, you know, people drink from the water, cook with the water, that kind of stuff. Yep. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So do you kind of have a prediction if this is something that doesn't really get under control quickly, how places like Kentucky, how, what would it be like here? Because like you said, you know, the plants here are having really nice growth, stuff like that. But also with the rising of temperatures and the destruction of waterways, would it be, you know, what would that kind of look like? So in Kentucky, uh, the one, the aquatic ones and the, uh, you know, ones we'd mentioned. But, but the other, I, I think a, a major one for Kentucky would be these potential for diseases that we were talking about before. From yeah. human impact to, uh, you, you know, to wildlife and uh, even forests and plants. Yeah. These changing temperatures 
you know, new pathogens and diseases could be introduced mm -hmm. that, you know, would not have been uh, without that. Now, the other thing, and I don't have a slide of this, but with these models, there's uh, various predictions for central Appalachia, including here in eastern Kentucky, that um, there's a higher probability that with uh, uh, rainfall that there would be greater rainfall, you know, within a shorter time period with increased risk of flooding. Oh, well. So, so I'm not completely with all, you know, the general thing about those models is the warmer the temperature, the more energy there is. Yeah. And then uh, if you look at rainfall patterns, why are the moisture we get and the rains we get, uh, most of the moisture, you know, develops up from the Gulf of Mexico and then comes across these different weather patterns we see here. So, um, I mean, I've seen that data and I've seen those predictions, uh, but one is um, uh, there is a, a model which would show uh, higher risk of flooding in the future, you know, mm. due to this uh, climate change. So I would say among those, the water pollution that we've talked about from the higher temperatures to the algae, to the potential risk of increased different types of pathogens, uh, to the other one, potential, you know, flooding that would be at a higher risk in the future. Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. I don't mean to be so gloomy. You know? <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, so, and, and, and now if there is one, yeah, I mean, there's lots of things to do, and then I got a little a slide later, but uh, with the slide that you just put up with surface mining, you know, the efforts to reforest uh, these uh, uh, mountaintop mine areas, uh, yeah. so that that is important. I mean, I've actually been to one of, like a farm that had been put on a mountaintop removal area, and it was very, it was awesome. It was very. Okay. Yep. Um, there was a, it's been a few years now, uh, I volunteered one Saturday with the Sierra Club. So the Sierra Club worked with, I think it was with Kentucky Power, or, and then uh, uh, another like nonprofit organization, and you could go volunteer to, you know, plant trees uh, on, on one of the mountain top reclamation cool. areas. So, so if you imagine, with back to this photosynthesis, what would happen then, and you mentioned the rainforest before, the, if you have a woody plant, it takes up the carbon dioxide, that's part of photosynthesis, so it takes it out of the atmosphere, and through the process of photosynthesis, if you have a woody plant like a tree, that carbon, which I think is one of the amazing things that I enjoy learning about science. You know? oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, here's this carbon dioxide molecule that we've been talking about, which is in the atmosphere, it's a gas, I'm waving my hand through it, right? Yeah. And, and this plant, like an oak tree, has this photosynthetic capacity to take this gaseous carbon dioxide, take it up through the leaf, use the energy of the sun, and turn it into wood. <laughs> you <know>? Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And so once a tree takes it out of the atmosphere and it's in wood, that's, you, you know, that planting a tree, and, and uh, whether it's the forest on the mountaintops here in Kentucky or trying to look at the palm oil that you discussed mm -hmm. before in Southeast Asia, or the destruction of these rainforests in the Amazon, uh, when they can go back into forested habitat, that that is a mechanism to, you know, get carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And it, and it's also, you know, those forests are habitat for living things. And yeah. 
Exactly. And the root structures are a mechanism to avoid flooding. Uh, and, and, and so, so you know, with all this, why uh, planting, a, planting trees, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. hmm. Yeah, so if you want to go down, I think it was this one here. Yeah, we've kind of discussed, if you want to go down to the last two slides, you know, I'll, I'll show you my house. Oh, right. well. So that's our house. And um, uh, those are solar panels. And there's uh, two sets on the far roof right there, the bigger panel system. Yeah. That's the photo, uh, photovoltaic system. So that's the solar panels that you hear a lot about, that uh, they can take the energy of the sun and uh, they can move electrons around and change it into electricity. And, and just to kind of a side note, I, I, did, did you, uh, so you've done a podcast with Tom and one with Gary, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so here's my, one of my little physics bits right here. <laughs> um, this effect of light uh, generating electricity uh, it's it's actually the uh, research or the paper that Einstein got his Nobel Prize for. Oh wow! So the the science of this turning the sun into electricity goes yeah. back to you know the early discoveries of Einstein. Wow. So, uh, but then you know engineering and science has you know made these solar panels much more effective. So yeah. that panel um, goes into. Uh, the, the grid. So I I don't have batteries at my house. So if, have you studied the Elon Musk and his power? I, I was actually going to ask you um, if this was similar to like Solar City, how he's got the well the solar panels that he has in the batteries and right because he because he has like a tile thing. It's called like Solar City, something like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is it the, is this what he's using on that? So and then. Um, what he's introduced is, uh, I think the battery is called a power wall. Yeah. Right? So what the long-term vision is that those solar panels could become effective enough. And everybody in the world of solar and alternative energy is looking for a better battery, a better way to yeah. store things, right? Um, so that if, yep, there you go. And that with that system, uh, you would be off the grid uh, with that system. You would have your solar panels and you could store that energy in the power wall. And if you so here in eastern Kentucky, it's going to be kind of tough you yeah. know? <laughs> they, uh, because uh, where that house sits by about even now, you know, at the end of June and the beginning of July by uh, by about. 3.30 in the afternoon, you, you know how it is around here in these hills. The sun's going over the mountain, right? Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. And it's... But, but still, I, I, I tell people, though, that even a house like that in eastern Kentucky, how effective the solar panels are. So you can I was going to ask, how, yeah. much of your inner, like, how much of your power is from your panels? So uh, that, that panel, what I get in electricity, is about 3,000 kilowatt hours per year, okay? So my house uses about 12,000. So that's I get, awesome. I get about one fourth. So I don't, you know, I, I couldn't make it without 
Kentucky power. Okay. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> I, I don't have enough generation, you know, yeah. and I, I don't have a battery system at all. I, I have what they call net metering. So uh, my system goes into the grid and then I have a, a, an additional meter and uh, then I get credit for the for electricity. what you send back. Yep. I, I get cool. credit for what I send back. So uh, and, and so that's the system that most people have uh, because you, you have to have, you know, a very modern solar system and you have to have, you know, a house situated in such a place that you get. A lot of sunlight. Yeah. Well, could that be something that we do for these mountaintop removal areas? Now that's that's been proposed, and I really don't know what the status is. I know there was a proposal in Pike County, um, and I'm really not. uh, So, so the other thing that happens with alternative energies like wind and solar, um, the most sun (laughs) and the best wind is in the less populated parts of the country. So, so if you had a chance of you guys to like travel out west across Interstate 80 or Interstate I've, 40, what would be Route 66 in the good old days? You ever go out that way? I've been to California, but I flew there. Okay. I think I've not gotten to drive, you know, through the Midwest and stuff like that. So if, if, if you would like get a chance, you know, when this, COVID thing is over someday, right? And we can get out and travel and be comfortable about it, you know? Why, why if, if you would like go through uh, northern Texas or across Kansas, or if you get to the, uh, you, you know, into the Sierra Nevadas of California, I, I mean, if, if you drive across Texas, you know those great big, huge um, uh, well, windmills that I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they are, if, if you're along the interstate traveling through the Great Plains of the United States, from the interstate, mile after mile, they're going to be in the number of the thousands. <laughs> you know, it's these massive, like that. And, and so you go ac- across through Texas there in places. Um, so there's a, and if you, if you ever do get to travel through there, it's, it's windy, you know, it's flat and windy all the yeah. time. But, you know, it's a low population density. So one of the parts of physics is that when you have to uh, transfer the energy through the power lines, the, the farther you transmit it, the more energy you lose. Yes. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, the, the windmills are fantastic. Uh, but, you, you know, out there, you know, in the middle of Kansas and in the plains of Texas, there's not many people there. And the same is kind of true for solar. Uh, that where you have the greatest deserts in the world, you know, obviously people don't live there. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah, exactly. You, you, you know, so you have to uh, transmit the energy and move, and move it to another place. Uh, but the technology in these areas has uh, really advanced. Now, there is one area, you know, from a conservation point of view, and I'm sure you've heard about, and, you know, the engineers are working together with biologists on this. Uh, would be like bird kills with yeah. windmills. But well, that's all. That's all that I've ever heard anybody say bad about windmills is that it kills X amount of birds. You know. Yeah, and they do. Uh, uh, but they've gotten so much better. Yeah. At, at picking out locations where you don't have large migratory areas, and I, I, I hope 
and, and then the larger birds of prey, but but for like the smaller songbirds and things like that, it, it is bad, but and it's terrible, but it's it's really a small number compared yeah. to the number of birds that are killed by uh, cats. Yeah, I was gonna say cats. Nick, Google how many yeah like, birds cats kill. It's like in the millions. Yeah. Now, of course, the cats aren't you know getting eagles or anything like that. Yeah. But in but terms of songbirds, songbirds and in terms of the effect on the songbird population. Uh, it would be there. See that seven billion. I thought it was a million. It's billion. It's billion. Yeah. Oh my uh, goodness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and so uh, I mean, there's some debate there, but uh, you, you, you know, in terms of you know using these alternative mechanisms to get energy. Now the uh, the other panel there, the one that's a little bit closer, um, that one is for my hot water tank oh that's so, cool yeah so what that does that's about a, in, that would be about a i think it's about a five by seven panel and it's got pipes going through there with uh water running through it and hmm. then I, I have an 80 gallon hot water tank and the hot water tank i have was designed to hook up to a solar system so on these uh obviously if, if you just think about that for a minute these hot days we've been having you know, oh yeah how much heat energy is on your roof, right? <laughs> you know? Yeah. So what that system does is there's a little pump uh, on the side of my hot water tank and uh, it collects the heat energy up there in that panel. It, so that this one does not make electricity. Uh, this one just um, transfers the heat from your roof and on my hot water tank, there's a little heat exchanger and it takes that heat and it warms up the hot water. So, uh, so my hot water tank, it's my whole house is electric. Um, and the hot water tank is an electric hot water tank. But then, uh, what happens is in the winter time, of course, I don't, you know, it, it'd be pretty cold showers if I depended yeah. on the system. You know? so yeah. My hot water tank, it does have a heating element in it, but, uh, here at home, we have kind of fun about what date we can turn the circuit breaker off. <laughs> So what, what we try to go for is like by the middle of April that I can turn the circuit breaker off on the hot water tank. Yeah. That April until like the middle or the end of September that we can get our hot water without using, you, you know, electric. That's, that's awesome. That has yeah. to be incredibly useful as far as like bills. Yeah. So that that's, that would be. Uh, yeah. So so that's one of those mechanisms you know, that kind of fills that need for storage uh, because, you know, it's uh, the hot water is stored so that we can, you know, take a shower in the evening and things like that. And it was, you know, the sun's energy that stored it up during the day. Uh, and then we use it at night. Now, you know, obviously when it's cold here with short day length in winter, yeah. there's not enough energy on my Sorry roof. To to it. Heat, you know? <laughs> so I do have my hot water tank has a uh, heating element in it. You know, a conventional one, uh, so that we can have a hot shower in the winter time. But during the summer, that that's kind of the fun part. That from April to about the beginning of October, why that panel right there is using the heat energy. You know, that it's on the roof on the hot days of summer. You know, for a hot water tank. And then if you go to the very last slide on this clip, why uh, uh, that one 
that's that box right there uh it comes off the roof as dc so that's the converter on the left yeah. right there and that converts it into ac and then you can see mm -hmm. on the right there would be the kentucky power meter yeah and that's 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 the net metering aspect of it so uh my component which is 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 really for where we live uh the technology you know really isn't feasible quite yet for elon musk here in eastern kentucky unless you happen to live in a you know an open <laughs> open valley uh, yeah. to, to get enough electricity to get through the night or you know cold winter nights or using air conditioning on hot summer days uh you, you, you know for that battery to last you through the you know you could be off the grid but that's kind of an interesting economical political point um you know if the technology got to the point where you would make this investment in a system but you wouldn't be on the grid anymore <laughs> right? yeah you know you wouldn't have an electric bill you know mm. and, and it's an, it's an interesting political one uh because both from the environmental point of view but then also from another political point of view where you know you're not you're you're really independent you're you're not you're, yeah. not, you're not dependent, you're dependent on the, upon the government yeah yeah and you, you know the and uh it's the you know government regulations in terms mm. of the electric company but and you know yeah you know there's kind of a thought in the future you know how many people would go to that system you know if, if you could you know have your own system and not worry about the, and then you wouldn't worry about lines going down in ice storms either exactly you know? yeah yeah Mm -hmm. well, I mean, that that would definitely be something that I would do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that for some people in some places, the technology is there, but uh, most places it's not quite there. You know, we don't get enough sunlight yeah. and uh, and, it, and you know, it's, it's still pretty expensive. You know? Well, do you think with like mass adoption of this that, you know, we see every year, you know, technology grows exponentially. And yep. you think with like mass adoption of something like this that we would see this industry sort of kind of catch up? I do. And here is the example I think of sometimes. Again, uh, when I was a boy going to school, okay, <laughs> this calculator that didn't do too many things, right? Yeah. Right? Uh, cost like $100 or something, right? And so in the world of – I mean you've seen it like – with just new uh, cell phones coming out and computers and things yeah. like that, what happens in the world? So this alternative energy stuff is like a technology field. So it's I, yeah. I, I see it much different. It, than yeah, it definitely is. Yeah, I, I see it as so much different from Exxon Mobil and natural gas companies and things yeah. like that. It, I, it's, I, it is different. Tech and what happens with tech over time at a yeah. very fast rate is you get more for less money, right? Yeah. And that's 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 what I see, and and uh, that there'll be uh, a technology to make it more efficient, and the cost will continue to come down. So just like it did when the, the you know calculators came out like that when I was in junior high or something like that, and just you know to watch them advance, and then yeah yeah you know I was going to graduate school when PCs were first coming out and that sort of yeah. thing, and it would just be a well you know the students didn't have them. <laughs> <You know? laughs> You know, so uh, so so yes, I, I I do see, it. and the reason I think that is because I I see it more as a technology than uh, you know a traditional energy company. Well, 
it's such you know solar panels and stuff are even used in well not really used yet but they well i guess they are kind of used in space with the movement of you know different things satellites and telescopes well, that's what the space station like relies on yeah yeah mm-hmm. so do you see mm-hmm. if we you know Garrison and I, well, when we were talking to Gary, he was talking about, you know, we're kind of on this precipice of a new space race, space exploration type thing. And do you think maybe as that grows, that technology will help increase the technology for batteries and solar panels, stuff like that? Yeah. Now, this is a little bit outside of my field. Yeah. But I do. Because, yeah. you know, for the, I mean, that type of research and engineering that goes into that is where they find those efficiencies, right? Yeah. So, so I, I, you know, I very much think that, uh, you, you know, the type of things they discover and learn from the efficiencies of using those solar panels for that type of advanced technology works its way, you know, Down to us, into, a, yeah. into a house in eastern Kentucky, like the, like the picture we're looking at, you know. That's very and so, cool. And so, so what do, do you want to do anything about? Uh, we've been. I'm. I'm fine. But do you want to? Uh, oh, we. I'll, we'll go as long as you want. So you want to do a little bit of water before we? Yeah. Sign yeah. off. Okay. So if you want to go to the other set of slides. So um, uh, this is an organization. So so uh, this is an environmental group, the Kentucky Waterways Alliance, and it's a group I've been with for a long time, a nonprofit. And um, we work on and address uh, water quality issues uh, yeah. throughout Kentucky. So there's lots of environmental groups and, that are all doing lots of, of you know, good things. Uh, but ours is the group that uh, focuses on uh, water issues. And if you go to the next slide, uh, I'll show you. So. Uh, you, and I, I, I mean, I just picked up this slide, but yeah, you know, especially here in the hills and valleys of eastern Kentucky, everything eventually is going to be in the river, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah everything. And uh, where do you live? Well, right now I live in Winchester, but I'm from Prestonsburg. Oh, okay. So yeah. we depend on, so you're on the Prestonsburg City Water Supply? Or? Yeah, was. Yeah. Uh, so their intake is there by Adams Middle School. Mm-hmm. And um, so every, the, you know, the drop of water that goes into the big sandy watershed, you, you know, that flows north toward the Ohio River, it's going to be, you know, that part of the watershed that goes through the big sandy through Prestonsburg is our, that's our water supply, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. So whatever happens in those hills and valleys, uh, from a human health point of view, it's critical. Then another thing is, if you measure water quality, you're measuring like the whole watershed. You, you know, you're finding out what's happening in the mountains and the hills and the houses mm. and the valleys and other places because um, it will end up. You, it you know, drains down. Yep, and it and it drains down there, and mm. so um, uh, that that's our kind of motto that we in this that work on water quality issues. Uh, whether you know it or not, you live in a watershed. You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, it, and and so, if you're on a city water supply in Prestonsburg, it's from the river uh, where I grew up in Northeast Ohio. Uh, the water table was really high, 
And even a lot of the small towns didn't have a municipal water supply. Um, we all had wells in the backyard. Um, but then uh, those wells in the backyard, uh, it was northeastern Ohio and it's uh, a heavy, heavy agriculture area. So, you know, what I've thought about since is, you know, the, the pesticides and the fertilizers and the chemicals that the farmers in that area use, it ends up in the creek, but for a lot of people, they get well water and it also ends up in the, in the wells. Uh, mm. And so now a little bit of a history lesson. If you go to the next slide, are you familiar with uh, 1969 in Cleveland, Ohio? No. Okay. So um, uh, Cleveland is where the Cuyahoga River comes in. And uh, so the river was so polluted that, and it didn't happen just one time. So I have this date, June 22nd, 1969, but it happened multiple times. They had oh, a in Cleveland <laughs> with the river catching on fire. Oh, man. Well, that's like that reminds me of when fracking first came around and people were lighting the water from their faucets on fire. Yeah, <laughs> that's terrifying. That's terrifying. So um, the environmental movement that developed uh, in the 60s and then into the 70s with environmental legislation, uh, part of it was prompted by, you, you know, when the river is so polluted that you have to call the fire department, there could be a problem. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, uh, it, uh, if you go to the next slide, I, I put on a couple things there about, the, and so they've done a lot of great work though in the Cuyahoga River and uh, 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 Lake Erie. So that particular blaze was a couple hours, and it's it's stuck with the American public. And, and uh, I put one comment in about Cuyahoga and uh, you know what could happen. Uh, but but that and other parts, if uh, you go maybe two slides down, I'll point out another one. So uh, you, you recognize the gentleman on the left there, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So um, the gentleman's name is Ruckles House, and he was the first administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency. Hmm. So most of the federal legislation that we have now to protect the environment was during the Nixon administration. So from the formation of the EPA to the legislation of the uh, Clean Water Act and the Clean Drinking Water Act and uh, a number of other pieces of legislation. So what I sometimes come, I, I mean, if one doesn't know very much history, if we say Richard Nixon, you know, what comes to our mind is... Well, that's what I was going to say. We only hear the bad things about Nixon. We only hear Wari. Now, I, I, I really don't know how much of a true environmentalist he was. Actually, what I... We, we should have Professor Majesi comment on this mm -hmm. in, in the future. He loves Nixon. It, so, um, uh, you, you know... It kind of tells us about the time that you could have a Republican president, Richard Nixon, who was very much also a foreign policy and, uh, you, you know, with the Vietnam War and things like that going on, that he would address these environmental issues. Yeah. And I think what it speaks to is 
that there was such an environmental movement at that time and uh, there was a uh, uh, so much going on in the general public in terms of their concern about you know what have we done when the river catches on fire you know? yeah that that there uh, would be uh, the kind of legislation that there is with the Environmental Protection Agency and the legislation. So I kid sometimes. Um, the other great movement in the environmental movement was Teddy Roosevelt. I love t- Teddy's my guy. Okay. So, so great public uh, public land. He's public national land. national parks. That's my guy. Yep. So most people like Professor Majasic, uh and I well professors to other people and like. You just said he's your guy. Yeah, in terms of recognizing uh, an environmental movement in the country, they would say Teddy Roosevelt. Well, I would say that next to Teddy Roosevelt, the greenest, most environmental active president we had in history would be Richard Nixon. That's uh, so crazy. Yeah, because that legislation and that movement was uh, you know, during, uh, during his presidency. Now, with the time we have, if this sounds okay to you, if we go down a few slides, I had one slide that had like, it's almost toward the end. It has like right there below the garden picture, the one your arrow's on now. Yeah. Yeah. So I just wanted to, uh, uh, in terms of our streams here, okay, and how healthy is a stream and how do you measure streams? So that first one, here in eastern Kentucky, uh, the bacteria and fecal, you know, that's the biology word for poop, right? Yeah. <laughs> <You know>? yeah. <laughs> so that would be, sadly, in eastern Kentucky, the contamination of having in coliform is a particular category of bacteria. Mm-hmm. So having these bacteria in the streams is from uh, uh, untreated or uh, not functioning uh, septic systems is where that would come from. If, if we were in an agricultural area, it would probably be from the cows, right? Yeah. But, uh, but just the, the, the way it is here, if, if you go out to a stream, uh, uh, most streams, uh, you're going to find relatively high levels of this bacteria, fecal coliform, and it would you know, be from septic systems. Um, the dissolved oxygen, that's the one I was talking to you about before, yeah. uh, that goes down when the temperature goes up. So mm-hmm. one thing I like to tell folks, <laughs> like so many of us have a small stream, we live a, along a small stream or something like that, or even if you live along the river, uh, those trees are so valuable <laughs> to the aquatic yeah. in that river. I mean, there's lots of reasons why, but one is on these hot, sunny days, um, they provide cooling, right? Yeah, it's and like the shade. It's in the shade. And that cooler temperature with the higher oxygen level is critical to, um, mm. uh, you know, having a healthy stream that you could have. So, and then the next one, there's been a lot of work done in the years, but pH and in our area, uh, most of that, you know, was from uh, uh, mining activities. Yeah. So the mines would uh, uh, release different kinds of minerals uh, that would uh, make for, it's referred to as acid mine drainage. So, but, 
that, but there's been a lot of work done there. Now, the conductivity is what it sounds like. Uh, so there's all sorts of things you can measure in a stream. <laughs> but there's one that's been found to be like, it's like a lot of things. If you had one number that could explain lots of things, that would be a, something nice to work with. And this conductivity is what it sounds like, how well an electric current uh, moves mm. through water. And there's a little device to measure this quite easily. And what it really amounts to is the more pollution there is from different sources, the conductivity is higher. I bet you've seen this on those TV commercials. Have you seen like, like zero water? Yeah. Yeah. So that, that would be they've removed all the minerals in their filtering system. Um, hmm. So well, don't you need wouldn't you need minerals in your water? Now you do. That's exactly right. So you yeah. need minerals, uh, and th there's an and what there would be there would be like a particular number that would be for a healthy stream. Yeah. And so the only thing that really you know you can have those filtering systems, or if you had distilled water from the grocery store, I mean it would be down to zero. But you're exactly right that the other healthy parts you do you know that's part of the natural yeah you know, part of a stream. Uh, but from uh, different types of pollution activities, including mining, why this conductivity, it goes up to a certain number and then you just, it, it's like you don't find little critters in the stream anymore. Uh, the nitrogen and phosphorus, uh, that's uh, mostly from agriculture is the yeah. big one. I mean, it would be also from like uh, septic systems, uh, uh, but but the, the biggest one in the United States is, is fertilizers, pesticides and herbicides. Obviously, they speak for themselves. The temperature is what I meant to you before. Oh, uh, yeah, I don't know when it'll change. But, you know, when it rains, what color is the river? <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. It's not supposed to be brown. So yeah. that's <laughs> solid and turbidity. It's, it, that's erosion. That's not natural, you, you know. Uh, and then uh, the last one on the list right there, um, there's certain species of organisms that you can look for in the water, and they're indicators of the health of the stream. So they're invertebrates, so crayfish and things like that fall into this yeah. category. The macro means that they're big enough, you really don't need a, a microscope to see them. So uh, crayfish and uh, uh, other types of uh, invertebrates you can go into a stream, you can, you know, kick up the pebbles and cobbles and things like that. And look, you just catch them all the time as a kid. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, uh, the, and then what happens is particular species you find, or sadly, if you don't find them, yeah, you know, that would be a, if you don't find particular species, they'd be an mm -hmm. indicator of pollution. But if you do find this healthy population of different kinds of macroinvertebrates, then it's an indicator that, oh, this is a, you know, healthy, your little stream's pretty healthy. That's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. So, uh, your time is like, or if you got any questions along the way? I kept talking a lot. <laughs> no, this is this has been great. Um, so, what would you say to people besides you know check the data or whatever? What would you say to people that do not believe that? climate change is happening and that we are accelerating that whole process uh, the, 
now you said, you know, check the data. That That's the first thing I do. I got the yeah. graphs, right? Yeah, exactly. Like we have <laughs> the information. Numbers. Yeah. I got the graphs to show you, you know, and it's really, you know, it's really, and, and then, you know, I just picked out Miami Beach, but, you know, look up stuff for, uh, you know, the city engineers that are doing planning on coastal areas, you know, places like that. And then um, the, the other, um, I mean, this is a global issue, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah it is. That, that's the other thing to, to get our, you know, if there's anything, you know, we can change our minds about trade with other countries and immigration policies and things like that. But, but when it comes to the environment and when it comes to the first atmosphere, it, it, it's, it's, it's global. Okay. Yeah, it, it affects everybody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, uh, so I, 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 um, the, the first one I, 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 but look at these numbers. You know? yeah. yeah. Hey, check this out. <laughs> look at the graph. Well, I got the graph right here. You know? <laughs> so. Well, a lot of people talk about how, gosh, this was in the earlier two thousands. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe it was 2001 when Al Gore, after he lost the presidential race yeah. and he started his environmental work and right. he made, he made the movie and he was talking about how Florida would be underwater, you know, and we've passed that point and people yeah. always bring that up. And that's what I was kind of getting at earlier. You know, as we get in more data, do you think that these models and stuff need to be redone with current oh, data? Yeah. And they constantly are. Yeah. So I'm glad you brought that point up <laughs> uh, uh, because that's the way science works. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, I mean, you put an idea and then. Yeah. And, and then, people berate that idea until it's, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, so sometimes science will be accused of like manipulating the data. Yeah. Uh, but, but, uh, but what one does with the data you know, is work to make it more meaningful or do experiments, you know, in different directions. So that's, that's right. You know, in terms of, I know, well, I'll, I'll tell you one in the environmental movement. Um, do you ever hear a book called the population bomb? No. So there's a Stanford, uh, biologist and I think it was about 1968. Um, and it was part of this environmental, movement of course nixon was elected in 1968 yeah um but during that uh 60s um he wrote this book called the population bomb and uh there we go he would have made predictions uh from the book you see right there that the human population was increasing at such a rate that i I forget exactly what his dire prediction was but he didn't you know he predicted not too far in the future there would be mass starvation uh, and, and, uh, you know, horrific consequences. And well, we are kind of seeing that now. Well, there's two things. Yeah. So we, we see that. And one of the things, you know, in terms of how the world and developed countries, you know, one of the other things that happened though, that the U S has been, I mean, the farmers in terms of how much food they can produce have done fantastic. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, the colleges of agriculture, like at the University of Kentucky and the farmers and the people, they've been able to produce, you know, food that Paul Ehrlich would have never imagined. Um, uh, but 
back to that other, see the nitrogen and phosphorus on there and the pesticides and the herbicides. Yeah, <laughs> <you know? laughs> so it's been at a cost, right? Mm. So it, it's, it's been at a cost. Now, the other thing, Paul Early, that's a little bit outside of science that he didn't recognize, um, the birth rate has come down dramatically since 1968. So like here was a scientist at Stanford that wrote a book with a really an alarming title, right? The population. Yeah. And I, I, it gets a little bit, there were certain things about Al Gore that were very alarming, that the time was short and that sort of thing. Uh, but like Paul Ehrlich, it did not include how we would have advances in agriculture to produce more food per acre. And it did not include the sociology aspects that families would be having uh, um, fewer children, you, you know, those things together. So um, now that, that I picked that one just because that one's, you know, one that was in the news. Uh in terms of a criticism of science, yeah. but, but you, you, you always work, you, you know, you, you get the data and you do the experiments and, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, science does, uh, you know, it's not rock, you know, we don't hold it up as like uh, a stone tablet. That's, that's the whole yeah. idea. It's not, <laughs> you know? yeah, exactly. That, that you put it out there and it's criticized and you come up with a better model and you better explain things. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, and and you you don't keep it a secret. You make it public, and and everyone gets an opportunity to see it and criticize it. So. Well, if if science was a stone tablet, then there would not be any advancement. That's right. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's that's the yeah. whole idea. And I think that's kind of a common misconception that people have. Yep. And then back to the data, why in the Enlightenment period, and it still existed in the Royal Society of Great Britain. I, I don't know how to say it in Latin, but their motto is something to the effect, take no one's word for it. <laughs> you, <know? Yeah>. Yeah. <laughs> you don't take anyone's word for it. You show me the numbers, you do the experiment, you look at the data. So. Mm. That's really cool. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good, to end, good way to end it. Okay. Okay. With the Royal Society. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I hope it was, the time went really quickly for me. I've enjoyed yeah, this was, this was awesome. This oh, was yeah. really cool.